Good morning again. It's good to be here with you. Good to be encouraged by the songs. And uh, let's be encouraged as we uh, look into God's Word together. Three weeks ago, we took an introductory journey into the book of Hebrews. We explored the history behind its author and its acceptance into the canon. We zeroed in on the phrase from the prologue, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which could also be translated, Jesus is the one who bears all things to its intended end. For you see, the Greek here translated by the ESV as upholds is not a static word. It carries with it a dynamic sense of movement toward a particular end. This helps us understand that God is a God of history. God, and particularly Jesus as the Son incarnate, as extolled in the prologue of Hebrews, was and continues to be intricately involved in history. God is involved in our lives. Even when things are difficult, as they were for the recipients of Hebrews, God is not aloof. He is, in fact, moving things along to their intended end. As part of this movement, God spoke to the prophets at many times and in many ways. This variety is reflected in the literary genres or types of literature which God inspired to give us the Bible. And because ultimately God is the author, we know that we can trust God's word. Verse 2 begins, but in these last days. With this phrase, Hebrews introduces us to a new era. This is, in fact, common language in the New Testament. Last days phraseology introduces us to Jesus in the flesh, our Lord's life and ministry, which marks the culmination of God's revelation. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. In Christ, the messages spoken by the prophets and God's guidance of historical biblical events come to fruition. Now, as we look at Scripture, whether in the Old or in the New Testament, we come face to face with a Savior who is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe and who has completed a way for all to be purified from their sin. Though this purification was completed, God still calls us to holiness. In fact, Hebrews warns us that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. With that call, we understand that there is continuity in God's revelation. His standards for us are unchanged, even though Christ has now come. In fact, now that God's ultimate revelation has arrived, our excuses for not turning to him seem even more feeble. How can we deny the one who gave himself for our purific purification and justification when we can see him so clearly in the pages of Scripture? Hebrews is a unique book that extols Jesus Christ as the most glorious of all beings and at the same time issues very stern warnings. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
Hebrews also highlights the fact that there is no longer any requirement for continual sacrifices or religious ceremonies. A superior way, a new and living way, has been opened as we now can follow our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, into God's throne room. So there you have a quick summary of the introductory message from three weeks back. Now, if uh, the Lord permits, someday maybe uh, we'll be able to continue on from the summary of that chapter, what we're doing today, and there's so much more in the book of Hebrews that we could explore together, Lord willing. Today, though, there's going to be some overlap as we revisit the prologue in some greater detail, and we'll explore how the prophets or the prologue ties into and is fleshed out as the writer contrasts Jesus with angels in the last 10 verses of chapter 1. We'll do some theology together as we compare verse 1 of our passage with the beginning of John's gospel, and we will grapple with the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And we're going to kind of hammer a little bit on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. A deeper understanding of this relationship, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, will enhance our ability to praise God with a mind transformed by the truth of Scripture. My prayer is that we will all be able to join that throng of worshipers whom Jesus is seeking to worship him in spirit and in truth. At the end of our journey today, we will gaze together on our glorified Lord, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And by God's grace, our hearts and minds will be filled to a greater height with love and admiration for our Lord. May the Lord make it so. Hebrews is written in the most sophisticated Greek of the entire New Testament. The prologue skillfully weaves together different ideas and introduces God as speaking and Jesus as superior to all others in a series of statements tied together in one long sentence that actually extends from the beginning of verse 1 to the end of verse 4. In this series of connected thoughts, there is, however, a clear division. The first section begins with God as the speaker and ends with Jesus as son. God is a God who communicates. He speaks to us through creation and through his word in a variety of ways as we have already seen. Romans reminds us his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This statement acquires additional layers of meaning as time passes. Technological advances, especially in the last decades, have allowed us to investigate the vastness of the universe and the intricate workings of God's creation down to the minutest details. Back in the day, they had no idea about these things. For example, in Darwin's days, it was thought that a single-cell creature was 
extremely simple, consisting of three very dimly defined components. Now we know that the cell nucleus contains genetic information, sometimes billions of bits, essential to the cell's sustenance and reproduction. Single cells have now been described as having the complexity of a major metropolitan city. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. If you've looked up into the sky at night and felt a sense of awe and wonder, that's a small taste of God speaking through creation. Yes, God is a speaking God, and his speech begins in the prologue with this first thought, which culminates in the revelation of Son. God spoke, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Or as in the original Greek, it says, he has spoken to us in Son. It may sound a bit odd to express it in that manner, the revelation of Son. But in fact, in most Bible translations, the word his is supplied by the translation committee. In the original language, there's no article, there's no possessive pronoun. Why is this the case? Well, first of all, it's important to note that it's okay to have the word in there. It's not like we're changing the Bible. Because in English, we just don't talk that, talk that way. It's natural to add the possessive pronoun. But in the original grammatical construction, the son is emphasized by this unique method that the Greek uses. It brings the hearer to attention. A similar thing is going on in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Most of you are probably familiar with this passage. It's a very familiar verse. But some of you may not know that there's no article modifying the word God. That is, in the Greek, there's no English equivalent to the word da or a. It doesn't say the God. It doesn't say a God. It just says, was God. To quote one commentator, a long string of writers have argued that because theos, God here, has no article, John is not referring to God as a specific being, but to mere qualities of godness. The word, they say, was not God, but divine, unquote. Others have gone so far as to supply their own article for this verse, and they claim that John is saying that the word was a God. With this construction, then, I suppose, Jesus is just one God among many, or maybe he simply is a divine being, as the commentator previously quoted has noted. Perhaps he was just an angel or some such spiritual being. If we accept any of these options, then Jesus would not be the one who is totally God and totally man, as presented throughout Scripture. 
Furthermore, our Lord's highly exalted position as one who sits at the right hand of majesty, as Hebrews proclaims here in the prologue, in fact, that position would seem kind of paradoxical. How could this one spiritual being who's just one of many be seated in that, sp seated in that special throne? Let's see what the Old Testament says, first of all. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. It is significant that this passage challenges anyone who can predict the future to try and do so. When in fact, God alone is the author, author of history, and he brings his purposes to pass. As Isaiah tells us later in the book, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The psalmist agrees, for all the peak gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And perhaps one of the most well-known passages which proclaims God as the one and only is from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this passage, called the Shema, is actually quoted by Jesus when asked what is the greatest of the commandments he quotes this passage and then he goes on to quote from Psalm 110 verse 2 which we'll be referring to later in the message because that's also quoted in Hebrews the Lord our Lord our God the Lord is one so what exactly is going on in John 1, 1? To quote again from the aforementioned commentator, the effect of ordering the words this way is in fact to emphasize God. It is as if was God is printed in italics, unquote. The apostle John is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God a fact that corroborates the reality that the Word was there from the beginning. Only God was there at the beginning. Outside of God, everything else is a created thing. But the Word was there in the beginning, as the verse says, collaborating in creation, because the Word, in fact, is God. The emphasis put on the word God by the lack of an article is similar to the construction in Hebrews. 
In these last days, he has spoken to us in son. Son is in italics or bolded, so to speak, drawing our attention to Jesus as the culmination of God's revelation. From this time forward in history and here in Hebrews, Jesus is the central figure, the one to whom all glory, honor, and power is given and to whom we owe our allegiance as Lord and King. At this point in the letter, it presents eight statements about Jesus as the long connected sentence continues. But before we do continue into that sentence, I want to tie up a loose end in my argument. I made the point that God is one and that there is no other. And then I proposed in the comparison of the grammatical construction that this is emphasized by the grammatical construction. So I'm saying there's only one God, and I'm saying at the same time, Jesus is God. Now, if you think that God is a simple being, this sounds kind of confusing. How can there be two? Because I'm saying God is one, and I'm saying Jesus is God too. But as theologians say, God is a complex one. The biblical model of God is based on a perfectly balanced triad of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is this even mathematically possible? After all, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what's that? One plus one plus one, doesn't that equal three? So are there three gods now? Well, if we want to think of it in mathematical terms, we have to think of it in terms of infinity. If you take one infinity and you add infinity and you add infinity, what have you got? You still have infinity. God as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three infinite persons in one essence three infinite persons who are individually God but simultaneously maintain one essence as one infinite God. We are finite and have definitely have difficulty grasping the infinite. But God has revealed himself to exist in the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a being of one essence, and yet in God's complexity there are three persons without any of them being of lesser quality or requiring that one creates the other. They have always been. Just as Hebrews proclaims about Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Genesis, when God created Adam, he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. In the very first book of the Bible, God speaks of himself in complex terms because there is a forever relationship in the Godhead. We have already seen relationship in John 1.1. In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Father and the Son have always been together, engaged in the creation and sustenance of the world and in the revelation of their being to us. This revelation culminates. I think I've said that word at least three times now, maybe four. This revelation culminates in the Son who makes a closing bracket in God's revelation. Jesus is the central figure in history and in our faith. It is understandable that our relationship with him, in turn, is affected. And it affects eternity. What is your relationship with the eternal God of the universe, the one who made you and me? Perhaps you're here today and you have questions about Christianity. Maybe you're new to all this and you wonder what all this means. Okay, so Jesus is God, God is God. What does that mean? What has that got to do with me? Well, the truth is, people always have questions. And the people addressed by the book of Hebrews had questions too. Maybe some a little more serious than the questions we have sometimes. Why are some of our friends in prison? Why did God allow these people to steal my property? Will it really make a difference if I do some things you say that will take me out of fellowship with God? Because it seems like life is hard and, and it's hard to follow. And Hebrews warns, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Do we really want to risk drifting away? I don't have all the answers, or I don't even know all the questions. And I obviously don't know what's happening in your life right now. But the fact is, God knows. He knows you. He knows your temptations, the joys, sorrows, the struggles that you face every day. And the fact is, he created you and me, as Mordecai told Esther, for such a time as this. But based on scripture and on my own experience as to how God has worked in my life, and I'm sure in many of yours, I can only attempt to follow the example we're given, and I'm thinking specifically of the example provided by the letter of Hebrews. The letter's recipients have questions, as we do. They're struggling with strong opposition and persecution. Some of their fellows are in prison. Others have had their property plundered because they chose to stand with those who have been treated, mistreated by authorities. How does the pastor, and I use the term pastor in regards to the author of Hebrews, who's one of the commentators, that's what he calls him throughout his commentary. He calls the author of Hebrews the pastor. So how does the pastor respond in this situation where people are in trouble and people have questions? The pastor reminds the people 
about the majesty of Jesus and his superiority over all others who have gone before or who will come after. So that's how we're going to try to proceed through the rest of our time together. We're going to look at God's word and trust that his spirit will use it for our good. If you feel that you need a touch from God this morning, you're not alone. Without him, I can't stand. Can you stand without God? Without his spirit working in my life, I fall and I fail. But, I love that word but that occurs in many different places throughout scripture. The contrast between what we're like and what God is like. But thanks be to God. He has given us his word which calls us again and again into his presence where we know his grace and his love. He's calling us to join his son and to sit at his feet in his throne room and to just revel in the fact that his salvation is better than anything else offered anywhere. In these last days, today, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In these first two descriptions, he appointed him heir of all things and through whom he created the world. God is the subject of the sentences, and we see God appointing and creating through Jesus. It reminds us of Pauline descriptions. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. God's designation of Jesus as the heir flows from this position as his firstborn son. It's not an indication of his humanity, but an indication of his superiority as the son par excellence. There's only one firstborn, and he naturally has the right to the father's special favor. The son, in this position of honor, holds it as the father and the son have determined before the world began. The verb tense here indicates a one-time past event. And based on our understanding of the Trinitarian relationship, it reflects the cooperation of the father and the son as the son submits to the father's will. The Gospel of John testifies, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Later in Hebrews 10, we hear Christ's reply to his father's appointment. So the father's doing the appointment early here in the book. But then later in Hebrews, we'll hear Jesus say this, 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus has come to do God's will. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Together, God the Father and God the Son planned our Lord's participation in our humanity. As Jesus became the true heir of all things, so that all who put their faith in him would be fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. In Christ, we are children of God. Then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We inherit Christ's righteousness to replace our own sin-stained selves. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Before we move on, let me remind you of a crucial fact about our righteousness in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are made righteous as God puts his cloak of righteousness on us, so to speak. But what happens then? Do we just sit back and become the equivalent of fat and lazy Christians? Hey, I'm righteous. Look at me. Nothing much I have left to do. I'm just sitting here being righteous. You know, just so to balance that kind of idea, look at Romans 8.17 again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And you notice this last part that I didn't have up on the slide previously. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Suffer? What's up with that? We have to suffer? Well, the reality is we're all humans. And we all have a life to live. And we will all suffer in varying degrees. But do not be overwhelmed by it. We have a life to live. But in Christ, we have the third person of the Trinity living in us. The Holy Spirit works to produce something the Bible calls repentance in our minds. So don't be scared by that word repentance. It's not penance. 
doing something to gain God's favor. It's us living our lives in the power of God's Spirit, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. What the word repentance means in the original Greek is to change your mind. In fact, the way the New Testament describes it happening in Acts chapter 11, and they're describing what happened as the Gentiles began to be brought into the kingdom of God. And then they realize that to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's a gift. It's been granted. The change of mind that God requires of us, it's actually a gift that we can participate in. He's just giving it to you. All you have to do is have faith in Christ and follow. Be the person that God wants you to be as he reveals it to you in the word. I think probably the best example of living according to a changed mind is the Apostle Paul. We all know him. What was he doing before God did a work in his life? He was trying to kill everybody who was following Christ. But then God knocked him off his horse and said, get up and start going in an off opposite direction. And that's what changing your mind does. You get up and you start going in an opposite direction. And that's where the suffering part of our Christian life comes. Because it's easy to just go along with the world and just follow, and just follow the flow of things. Just keep going that way. But when God comes into your life by the Holy Spirit, and he shows you the magnificence of Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden you don't want to go with that flow anymore. You're like, no, I'm going this way now, thank you. But you're going to get beat up by the world. Yeah, I know, but I love this guy over here. And I don't want to go where he's going. I want to go where the Lord Jesus Christ is going, and I'm not going the easy way anymore. I'm going the way that where there's going to be some suffering, but I know that the Lord Jesus Christ is with me, and the Spirit of God is in me, and he's going to change me. He's going to conform me to his word. I don't want to be conformed to the world anymore. I want to be transformed by the Spirit of God working in me. There's relationship behind all of this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you and me, the church, the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ, interacting, living our lives together, knowing the living word, discerning how the living word is contained in the written word, learning the goodness, what is good and acceptable and perfect, learning those things together. That's a short little picture of just what repentance is, what changing your mind, mind is all about. We don't want to, like I said, go with the flow. We're going against the flow. There's a man, Jesus Christ, sitting on a throne, 
and we want to get to him. The Father says together, we will create all things and all ages. In this paraphrase of the second part of verse 2, we see the encompassing nature of the word world, the word that's translated world. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This joint creative act with the Son, heir of all things, marks the culmination of God the Father's revelation. The Son is set apart, as we saw in the construction of the phrase at the beginning of verse 2, as the pinnacle of God's speech. As one commentator writes, the attribution to the Son of both creation and ultimate sovereignty shows clearly that he is included within the unique identity of God. These functions are divine prerogatives, never delegated to another. The language used is designed to distinguish God from the whole of the rest of reality." Unquote. As if to reinforce this understanding of the Son as creator and sustainer God, God speaks to his Son again, as Hebrews quotes from Psalm 102, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Perhaps you've had a conversation with someone who asks, show me a verse where it says Jesus is God. I want those exact words. My response might be, show me what you mean by God. Is God the one who made all things and who sovereignly moves the universe to its intended end? Look at the things Jesus does. The overwhelming weight of his divine prerogatives. At this point in our text, there's a transition. God the Father is speaking in the first two statements that we've looked at. You may have already lost those in your mind. Hopefully not. Now it is though we hear God's throne room erupt in praise to the exalted position Jesus has been given, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Six more phrases follow, modifying and illuminating the realities that give Jesus the right to sit down in the position of power, praise, and priority reserved for God. It is though the revelation has come to pass. The revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands gather with us around God's throne, all of us shielding our eyes from God's glory as we cry, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
In unison, the heavenly choir recites, He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who holds up the universe. He is the one who purifies from sin. He is the one who sits down at the right hand of God. And he is superior to the angels in essence and in name. The heavenly choir sings long and loud as joy unspeakable and full of glory. Recognize that phrase from 1 Peter. Joy unspeakable and full of glory fills our minds and our hearts as we see Jesus seated on, seated on the throne. As we contemplate our Lord, we're a little unsure as to how we should respond. Should we kneel before him? Perhaps we should shout and sing. Then suddenly, as we stand there in the, thr in the throne room, a great hush sweeps over the company. Clothed with the brilliance of a flash of lightning, radiant with God's glory, we see our Lord reach out his scepter, a scepter of uprightness, embodying righteousness and destroying wickedness. The king, the glorious king, the glorious king of kings, he's reaching out with his scepter. For some strange reason, the story of Esther flashes into our mind. The scepter. Is this a moment of destruction? Or is this a moment of glory? Is he reaching his scepter out in mercy? We recall the many times in our lives when wickedness was a part of who we were. But in the midst of that great company, we see countless others like us, men, women, children, drawing near to that glorious throne. And the angelic host still whispering reverently, or perhaps, perhaps they're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The reality is, they're encouraging us, all of us, to rest in the wonder of a king, the glorious king, the king of kings, who gave himself for our redemption. The contrast, the contrast suddenly grips us in a way it has never gripped us before. We thought angels were so cool. Such powerful beings, and they are, like the ninjas of heaven, right? But compared to Jesus, they pale in their servitude to their Lord and Creator.
We shake our heads in wonder, reminded of the psalmist's words quoted in Hebrews 2. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? Frozen in indecision. We recall the feverish angelic activity in preparation for Jesus' being brought forth as the one and only Son, the begotten of the Father. Remember? An angel announced the birth of John the Baptist, the last of the prophets. Soon after, Mary was informed by an angelic visitor that she would, as a virgin, bear the very Son of God. Then on the night of his birth, an entire choir of angels joined in triumphant song announcing the birth of a Savior to a small group of shepherds tending their flocks. The angels were in that moment carrying out God's command to worship the Son just as they were created to do. Let all God's angels worship him. We look around again at the throng of angelic beings. In speaking of our salvation, 1 Peter tells us that the angels long to look into these things. Did they know? They are, after all, just winds, ministers, a flame of fire. And as Hebrews will go on to reveal, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus said that he could have called thousands of angels to help him. Were they watching, hoping that they could be would be called into action? But if Jesus had called them, our salvation would not have been completed. Suddenly, it's as though we hear again God's voice thunder out from his throne. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. One word seems to stick out in our minds as we hear that proclamation. Enemies? Jesus has enemies? Who could stand against him? Who would want to? Am I his enemy? His Holy Spirit reminds us, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As we think about that, we grasp the reality of the spiritual world there is a spiritual battleground, and we are part of that battle. 
we can follow the prince of the power of the air, and we do when we live according to our own desires. As the Spirit of God searches his, our hearts, we understand the reality that the angels long to look into. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The angels enjoyed their role as the messengers and servants of God. They watched in amazement and wonder as the very Son of God humbled himself to walk for a brief time among us. But they could not fathom the disturbing fact that their Lord and Creator would give himself for a lost and sinful humanity. It seemed an unbearable thought that the Son of God could die. How could the one who is described as going on forever and ever and having an indestructible life be nailed to a Roman cross? The Gospel of John gives us the answer. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The relationship between the Father and Son that we've been making much of is key to understanding how the Lord of life would give his life. The Son and the Father shared the goals of glorifying themselves and saving all who would put their trust in Jesus and his one-time sacrifice. Jesus loves the Father and loves to do the Father's will. It was God's will to provide a means whereby we could be redeemed. Because of the outflow of Trinitarian love for each other and for their love for a lost humanity, Jesus was willing to lay down his life. Thereby, Jesus made purification for our sins, looking forward to the description of Jesus as our eternal priest who lives forever, interceding on our behalf. Hebrews uses temple language. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus identifies with us in his incarnation and makes us acceptable before God by his one-time, eternally effective, sacrificial death. Death, however, as we know, did not have the last word. As God raises Jesus from the dead, the angelic host is again called into action. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said, come and see the place where he lay. 
trembling in amazement with the women. We're now brought to the reality of our situation, standing in the throne room before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he's reaching out. He's reaching out to you and me. Will we bow in humble adoration? Will we give ourselves to live our lives for him? As many of you already have, where do we go from here? We continue in that walk. We continue extolling the greatness and the love of Jesus Christ to a lost and hurting world around us. May the Lord engage us in that task as we encourage one another, as we encourage people that we don't even know, that we may may meet throughout the week. Let's extol Jesus Christ to them and help them to take that step with us into his throne room to see how great Jesus is. If you want to talk with me or one of the elders, please, please do so. We'd be happy to discuss Jesus Christ with you or to talk about those trials and troubles and tribulations that he's bringing you through. Thank you.